This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this says? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? In here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast brought to you from the old Idaho State Penitentiary about the men and women that serve time here. My name is Anthony. I'm in the studio here with Skye. Hello. And uh, we've got some good stories for you today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so. excited. Um, yes, Guy, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, okay. Let's talk about one of our youngest inmates and mm. our only female inmate who is incarcerated for bigamy. Oh. Um, number 6626, Daisy Elizabeth Him Parsley. I'm very excited. So I, I've been thinking about doing her for quite a while, mm-hmm. and I was like, well, maybe we should do ones that we like people don't exactly know about, because Daisy is probably one of our more famous only because she was so young when she came in, and for quite a while we thought she was our youngest. And I just couldn't decide who I wanted to do, because I, I, the more that I get into these women, the more I want to tell every single one of their stories, like every single week where like I'm researching, I'm like, I want to do this lady. Oh, yeah. Uh, I just, I'm really getting to love these ladies. They're all so fascinating. <laughs> so I left it up to technology and I went to that Google number generator and I put in 217 just to selectively random and I we have an Excel list. And so the first number that came up, I hadn't done that inmate yet and so I was like oh, I can't do her the very second number was Daisy and so I was like all right I guess we're gonna do Daisy wow. so I don't know if it's fate I don't know if it was like <laughs> if you believe in spirits if Daisy was like listen I want my story to be told yes. I'd like to think it's that so <laughs> we'll go with that so all right Daisy we will just jump in so Daisy him was born in Lapway Idaho is that how you say it I'm assuming that yeah. is how you say Lapway, it it's yeah. Lapway um, so she was born in Lapway, Idaho on August 10th. The year is debated. On her intake form, which the information is they get from the inmates themselves, she says that she was born in 1925. Mm. But in the 1930 and 1940 census records, they place her birth years at both 1926 and 1927, which is very annoying. It makes it it's, so confusing. Yeah. Um, yes. So, um, oh, and by the way, my sources real quick. Of course, her inmate file, I've already mentioned census records, so Ancestry.com records, and then a few um, Idaho Daily statesman articles hers is a pretty straightforward story so she may have said that her birth year was 1925 to try to make herself older Mm. Um, because if she had been born in 1925 she would have been 17 or 18 upon her incarceration which given um, her crimes and uh, her crime and 
uh, her life leading up to that crime, she probably was hoping to be 17 or 18. Her headstone, spoiler alert, her headstone says 1926. So it's oh, probably okay. probably 1926 because her parent, her mother would have probably put the date on that. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. So mm. that's probably the most accurate year, which would have made her 16 um, at the time of her incarceration. She didn't even do the math very well herself because when she came in, she also listed her age as 16. So she said, I was born in 1925, but I'm 16. So she like didn't do the math very well on that. I I don't know. I sometimes those intake forms don't make sense. So she was probably born August 10th, 1926. Her parents were Thomas and Isadora Him, which just a side note, I love that name, Isadora. My advisor's name in my master's program was Isadora and she was the best. So anyway, (laughs) they were both older. Isadora was 40 when she gave birth to Daisy and Daisy was their only child. Thomas had heart trouble for most of Daisy's life and he passed away in 1938 when Daisy was about 12 years old. So... After that, Isadora applies for some some child welfare money, which she does get, but it's it's not very much money. I think she said it was like twenty or thirty bucks a month, which it is it is the nineteen thirties, but mm-hmm. still, it's not that much. So, Isadora and Daisy live in northern Idaho for most of Daisy's life. Daisy grow, grows up near Lewiston, up north, but Isadora's work as a single mother must have been very hard on her, and Daisy starts to have some behavioral problems. So. According to the Nez Perce County prosecuting attorney, he says that Daisy was involved, quote, with a gang who held up service stations, etc. There's not many details on that, but that's that's what he says that she's doing leading up to her time in the penitentiary. So probably because of this, she stated, Daisy herself stated, that she was sent to reform schools in Ventura, California and Centralia, Washington, uh, both in the early 1940s. After this is interesting though, after her incarceration, the warden wrote both of those schools to say like when was she here, um, was she behaved well while she was there. The school in Ventura, uh, the Ventura School for Girls in Ventura, California, wrote back and said they did not have any record of Daisy ever being there. Ah. So I feel like that's such a weird thing to lie about. Like why would you want to brag about being in more than one? I don't know if they lost records, but they they wrote and said, like, we don't. And we even checked other records. She wasn't. There was no one in here by that name, by wow. any of her names. Because by by uh, by her, obviously, by her incarceration, she would have been known as, as Parsley, whereas she may have been in him. But they said we don't have uh, any record of that Either, at all. Yeah. Wow. So then in late 1940 or early 1941, Daisy marries wow. Zeph or Zeth. So Z-E-F-F or Z-E-T-H. That isn't totally confirmed which one is correct. Zeph Parsley. He was 31. He was a 31-year-old farmer from eastern Washington or northern Idaho. Couldn't tell which one. Daisy would have been 14. So he is double her age. Wow. Also, she is 14. Yeah. I hate it. Oh, my I'm, gosh. I just, I don't, I don't, I don't fully understand why because sometimes women would marry because they needed to help their family out with money or they were in some sort of trouble themselves. Mm -hmm. Daisy doesn't really seem to be in that position. Isadora probably would have been working quite a bit, but it's just her and her and Daisy. And so I, I don't fully understand why she feels this need. It seems highly unlikely to me that she is in love with this man from what I can tell, uh, according to her mother, he was not a very good guy. He like didn't yeah. give her anything. So I don't fully understand the reason for yeah. this marriage. And I, it's just too young. It's too young. 
Not much is known about the marriage between Daisy and Zeph. What we do know is on October 1942, Daisy was granted a conditional inter... Oh, I should have practiced this word before. Interlocutory. Do you know how to say that? Interlocutory. I don't know. What that... I think that's that's the closest interlocutory. <laughs> interlocutory. Yeah. That's bad. That sounds good. I don't. Yeah. Anyway, um, so this decree <laughs> of divorce from Zeph. But basically, what this decree means, this conditional, in oh, say it again. Inter- interlocutory. Yeah. Okay. Interlocutory. Um, basically, what that means is the divorce, even though it's granted, it's not finalized for six months. Okay. So it's like a trial, mm-hmm. you know, separation almost? Uh, I think so, yeah. So basically, just like you're, you're, this divorce is granted, but you have to wait six months before you can do, you can mm. marry anyone else before this divorce is final. You are, you're divorced from him, but it's going to take six months for that to be finalized, gotcha, basically. Yeah. However, five days after receiving this decree, Daisy marries Donald Paul Hart. He goes by Paul. She commits bigamy for the first time. <sighs> Five days for the first time. For the first time, Whoa, where this is, is this not. Going? Yeah, this is not. <laughs> her story's not done yet. So the question is: Did she understand the conditions of this decree? Yeah. If she did understand it, she just ignore it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how long had they been married at this point? Zeph and Daisy. So yeah. they got married either late 1940 or early 1941. I couldn't find an exact so like date. So it's about a year yeah. and a half, yeah. probably, that they'd been married. Gotcha. She's only, by the way. 15 at this point yeah wow wow and not but much parental supervision actually she would have been wait she would have been 16 she was born in august and this is october 42 okay so yeah she would have been 16 wow still 16 <sighs> she's already got one divorce man <sighs> okay. different time <laughs> yes um it is i think it is possible that maybe at her age she doesn't understand i don't even know how to pronounce that word yeah much less know what it means i should have looked it up i'm very bad at this <laughs> it's very possible that as 16 she doesn't understand what this decree means and so she is in love with paul i think she's much more in love with paul than she is with zeph uh-huh. and so i think it's possible that she just loved him and she was like oh i got my divorce let's get married <laughs> So only a week after Paul and Daisy get married, Paul leaves for service in the army because this is during World War II. Yeah. So after that, Daisy leaves for the Washington School for Girls. So this is the one in Centralia. Um, She then returns to Idaho in early 1943, but Paul is still away in the army. Now, enter Carl J. Van Mulken. Oh, no. If you've been to the Faces exhibit, he is in the Faces exhibit. Yeah. Um, Now... A little bit about Carl. He was born in Minnesota in 1890, making him about 53 years old in 1943. And Daisy is 16. He is 27 years older than Daisy. He claims that he has known, actually both he and Daisy's mother claims that Carl had known Daisy and Isadora since Daisy was quite young, almost her entire life, um, which makes his next move even more gross and more predatory. So according to Daisy, after she returns from this reform school, he approaches her and threatens her life if she does not marry him. Um, She writes a letter in in 1943 after her incarceration. She writes a letter to the parole and pardon board, and this is what she has to say about how this all went down. She says, quote, Joe Van Mulken, the man who I married, is solely responsible 
responsible for my being in the predicament I am now. He threatened my life and that he said he would do away with me if I refused to marry him. He also threatened me in front of my people if I failed to become his wife. Any man who would do such a thing as cut his fingers from his hand to prevent mm. himself from being inducted into the armed forces is, in my estimation, liable to do anything. Therefore, I married him. I did not go to the police because they had sent me to the reform school and I was afraid that they would return me to that institution. But I can see now that the authorities want to help a person who is in need of it. Wow. So what she's saying is, listen, this guy is crazy. He mm -hmm. cut off his own fingers so that he wouldn't get sent into the army. Yeah. If, he, if a man is capable of doing that, I am sure he is capable of killing me or killing people in my family if I don't do what he says. Yeah. I can't say I blame her. Yeah. And indeed, Carl is missing fingers. According to his intake papers, the four fingers on his left hand had been amputated down to the last joint. <sighs> They're just gone. And yeah. so... It makes me wonder, because there are a lot of inmates that are missing mm -hmm. several fingers. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, a lot of them are minors and mm -hmm. working in jobs like that, mm -hmm. but and timber and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, during these war periods, yeah. yeah, it makes you think. Yeah. Wow. So she marries him. Because oh. what else What else is she going to do? So when Daisy and Carl marry, she signs the marriage certificate Ramona Lee Dorsey, mm -hmm. likely understanding that if the second marriage is discovered, she is going to get in trouble. And Carl probably understood that too. Like he, if he had known her her whole life, he knows that she's married and she's been married at least once before. Mm -hmm. And so it may have been his idea. We don't know. She doesn't talk much about the fact that she did sign it with a different name. Yeah. But this marriage is discovered. Um, her use of an alias doesn't matter. And so Daisy and Carl are both arrested. Oh. Daisy is charged with bigamy while Carl is charged with aiding and abetting a person to commit bigamy. I have, I have opinions on this, but it's fine. <laughs> so she pleaded guilty and then each, both Daisy and Carl are, have to serve a one to three year sentence and to pay a hundred dollar fine. So Daisy enters the Idaho state penitentiary on March 25th, 1943. Her intake papers, her Bertillion are really anything but flattering. Her weight is 165. She is five feet tall, even. Her complexion is ruddy, and her build is chunky, oh. which is not great. Um, here's an interesting thing. Her occupation is a musician, oh. but she there's no evidence that I could find that she played any sort of instrument, that she was a singer. I mean, really, it's probably more possible that she was 16 and she didn't she was probably a housewife, but she didn't know what to put for that because she wasn't a student exactly. She wasn't really doing anything. So I don't know what else you're going to put. Yeah. But I couldn't find any evidence she was involved with music at all. But huh. that's what she says her occupation is. So it, it is interesting in the fact that she is one of the few women who does not put housewife down as an occupation. Yeah. But again, she is 16. So, you know, what else are you, what else are you going to put? Um, now, here are my favorite details of her Bertillion. She has two tattoos, which is incredibly rare for women general, probably until the 80s or 90s, mm -hmm. and especially interesting on a 16-year-old girl in the 1940s. One, her, one of her tattoos is on her left forearm, almost exactly where mine is, and it says Grand Mound. Now, when I first found this, I was like, she must have had a horrible artist who, like... Oh just misspelled like grandmother Mom, or something yeah. like really really bad <laughs> but the other day i was actually working on a biography for another female inmate and she was sent to the same washington school for girls as daisy was uh. 
Even though Daisy's papers state that the school was in Centralia, Washington, this other paper said that the school was actually in Grand Mound, Washington. Oh. And so then the tattoo is probably a commemoration of her time at the school. Oh my gosh. Which I don't know why you would want that of all things, yeah. but I don't know. I, I think says, just like any kind of incarceration mm, tattoo, it's mm-hmm. just like, yeah. Just I, like I spent time here mm-hmm. and. This is a chunk of my life. Mm-hmm. And this is I, a I mean, she wasn't today. there yeah. for that long though. She, wow. she went after she married Paul, which was in October, 1942. And she was only there until like, she married uh, Carl in February, 1943. Mm. So she wouldn't have been, she would have been there for six months unless she had spent time there before. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, so that was interesting. I was so glad I finally made that connection. I've been wanting to know what mm-hmm, that was because mm-hmm. I remember us discussing yeah. this. Why would someone misspell grandmother? Yeah, like, and like into what? Grand Mound, oh like terrible. Gosh. But that makes as soon as I figured that out, because so Centralia and Grand Mound are like only miles apart. Right. So okay. so it's probably more likely that Centralia was like the larger of the cities, mm. and so they just said, "Oh, it's in Centralia." That makes so, sense. Yeah. Um. So that's her first one. Her other tattoo is on the backside of her left forearm, almost again exactly where mine is. <laughs> it's actually so rather than the center like mine is, it's more on the ridge of your of the arm um closer to the closer to your body uh-huh. and it says tp loves sl huh. now what do these initials stand for you may ask your guess is as good as mine oh. no idea the p could maybe stand for parsley but the t her name's Daisy, Daisy Elizabeth, unless yeah. she had some sort of nickname, maybe with Elizabeth that had a T involved, or she had right. some other kind of nickname that was a T. But then what's SL? Her husbands have been Zef Parsley, uh, Donald Paul Hart, and Carl Van Mulken. There's like no wow. S's or L's involved. Maybe it was like another boyfriend. Yeah. But there's no no idea what those stand for. So yeah, so those are her two tattoos, which are interesting. I love finding. <laughs> there's only a few ladies I found that have tattoos, and there's another one that I can't wait to get to. She also has a, an interesting tattoo as well. Anyway, that's her intake form. Those are her tattoos. So while Daisy is incarcerated, Isadora writes the warden at least three separate times to ask that Daisy be released early. And here is Isadora's account of what happened to Daisy in a letter from April 21st, 1943. Quote, I know that my daughter was tricked into this crime by a good-for-nothing fellow. He schemed for over a year or more to trick this poor girl into marrying him. He had her afraid by telling her he could cause her trouble if she did not marry him. He knew her all her life. He claimed that he was an FBD, I think is what this said. The handwriting was hard to tell. Either FBD or, or FBI. She just says he's an FBI. And F times, this again, this was handwriting, I couldn't tell. Um, showed us a badge. So he says, like, I'm part of the FBI, shows him a badge. Oh, what? Um, he showed me a badge down in town one day saying he was working with the FBI's, and I told him I would bet him $10 if he would come down to the 15-cent store that he had a 15-cent store badge out of the 15-cent store. <laughs> All he would say was, oh, yes, I am. Whoa. So, <laughs> So she says... He's he's coming to me. He's saying, I'm with the FBI. I need to marry your daughter. And she says, oh, really? I bet if I were to go down to the 15 cent store right now, I could find a badge that looks exactly like yours. And he keeps saying, I am with the FBI. So he's using this uh, authority, fake authority in this badge to get what he wants. Wow. Impersonating 
a federal agent? Wow. <laughs> Listen, Carl Van Mulken is a creep and I yes. do not like him. Yeah. His mugshot is so gross and I, <laughs> I don't like him. So in one of her later letters, Isidore says that Paul Hart is coming home on leave from the army and he wants to have Daisy with him to help him work his farm in Washington. She actually originally says Oregon, but um, later I found later documents that said that his farm is actually in Washington, which will make sense here in a few minutes. So even the warden, Sam Poach, thinks that Daisy should be paroled as soon as possible. And probably one of the the few reasons is her age. She's Mm, 16. Right. I think it's it's clear to most people this isn't exactly her fault. Mm-hmm. You know, what else are you going to do when this 53-year-old man is flashing a badge and saying he's with the FBI and saying you have to marry me or I'll kill everyone you know? I think <sighs> he understands this. Oh um, and 16 is just so young to be caught in the middle of these very adult situations. Like, I'm almost 26 and I just can't even imagine... What like what would you do if you were in this situation? You know, like I would contact the FBI <laughs> and be like, you know, there's no reason because this man's an FBI agent that I should be marrying him. Right. That, that is so many red flags. I, I don't understand how if the mother knew this. Mm-hmm. Sh- oh, See, but I think crazy. it's it's obvious that she knows he's lying. Yeah, like she said to him. I would bet your your badges from the 15 cent store. And he's uh, like, no, no, no. So she kind of knows that maybe there was some sort of financial situation oh, that, he, that yeah, he was holding against them. Yeah. Maybe there is some, there has to be some other sort of blackmail yeah. oh, incident to this. So but I know, but Daisy or Isa, neither Daisy or Isadora ever give that reason. I, as far as I can tell, Carl Van Mulken doesn't have much to say in his defense. He just says like, yep, I did it. And I don't really care. Yeah. I don't like him. All right. So, (laughs) so Daisy Elizabeth Himparsley is paroled in August 1943. But guess what? She's 17 and she makes some mistakes because she's 17. She is basically a junior in high school. (laughs) Um, So she says, quote, when I got got out in August, I had learned that crime doesn't pay, but I had not learned to stay in at night and obey my parole rules. Oh, so according to her own account, she goes out. With a cousin, a cousin's friend, and the two girls' boyfriends. They go to a dance 18 miles outside of Lewiston. And her mom, she told her mom she was going to go out. And her mom said, please, just don't go out tonight. You're going to get in trouble. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to get in trouble. You should stay home. And she was like, I'm 17. I know better. (laughs) I'm going to this dance. So when they leave the dance at about 1030, they find that their car has two flat tires. It takes them an hour to fix both of them, so they don't get back to Lewiston until about 12.30 or 1. It takes them a really long time to fix two flat tires. Then they're hungry. It's, you know, it's 1 o'clock in the morning, so they go out to eat. This is fair. I mean, I've done that plenty of times. Thankfully, Denny's is open 24 hours. <laughs> so it was about 2 a.m. when they finished eating. Then the cousin's friend didn't want to walk home alone so late. Uh, it was so late. So she says she forces Daisy and Daisy's cousin to let her stay with them or, quote, she would walk the streets till morning, then run away. This girl's crazy. <sighs> so in the morning, the girl goes back home. It's, I think they say it's about 830 by the time she gets home. And the girl's parents are furious that she was out so late and they're super upset and they take the girl to the county jail (laughs) like that's how mad they are at her and then this girl proceeds to blame pretty much everything on daisy and daisy says 
quote, because I'd been in the penitentiary, I got the blame for it, although I did break my parole by being out so late. So mm. the thing I appreciate about Daisy is that she's willing to admit to her mistakes. A, a lot of, uh, sometimes a lot of people will say like, I didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'm, I'm, they're only accusing me because I'd been in the penitentiary. Yeah, and she fault. says like, yeah. yeah, they did blame it on me because I was in the penitentiary, but I was out late. I did break my parole. So I have to appreciate that about her. Yeah. She will take the blame for that. So she's returned to the women's ward on September 1st, 1943. Now, there's some issue about Daisy's appearance when she first comes into the penitentiary. Her hair is cut pretty short. She's wearing uh, like a button up. She looks in some to some people, especially in the 1940s, she's looking pretty masculine. Yeah. So after being returned as a parole violator, she kind of assages those concerns she says quote since i've come back this time there has been a complete change in my life i'm letting my hair grow i wear nice little dresses and wouldn't think of putting on a pair of slacks or being tomboyish i'm a regular little lady (laughs) (laughs) i I actually am starting to think that this may be like just a tinge sarcastic oh yes a little bit she says i've been sewing ever since i've been back i've made a set of five small sofa pillows a dresser scarf edged with lace four pot holders and a bedspread that contains 54 square pieces that i cut and drew and embroidered and last but not least the thing that makes me the happiest is that i gave my heart to god and became a christian i intend to live a good christian life from now on wow so she says listen I don't dress like that anymore. I'm a Christian. I've been sewing. I'm a proper little lady. Yeah. All, everything everything that up. you were concerned about, you don't yeah. need to be concerned about anymore. And who and did she write this letter to? So this is to the parole board. That's okay. in that same letter gotcha. that she... Oh, no, it's a different letter. So that first one where she talks about, like, he threatened me, that was oh. in May. So that was two months after she first came in. Mm-hmm. This was in september i believe okay or october um when she basically is saying this is a reason why i want to get out now it's like she she talks about her parole why she broke it Mm -hmm. and then she goes on to say like i'm totally different now like i'm very sorry for what i did i can totally understand why i came back why i was here in the first place Mm -hmm. but i'm christian now i i think i should be good to go and this is exactly what the parole board wants to hear and so she is granted a full unconditional pardon on may 1st 1944 wow now, authorities suggest that she leave the Lewiston and leave the state, but this isn't a requirement for her part. And there is actually some question about that. I think it's someone in Washington who or may, be, may have been the prosecuting attorney for mm-hmm. Lewiston County writes the word and says, didn't you say that she had to leave? And he says, we suggested that she yeah. leave, but this is not part of her condition. So she actually, she kind of follows that recommendation. She's in Lewiston for only a few days before she supposedly joins Paul on his farm in Washington. Oh. So everything's good there, do you think? No, it's not. No. No. So where do records find her next? Well, they find her arrested for vagrancy in Seattle in June 1944. So Mm. this is only um, three months after she's released. She is arrested for vagrancy. Then... She's arrested in San Francisco in September 1944 for violating the Dyer Act. And for those of you who don't know, a Dyer Act is where you steal a car and you transport it over state lines. So Mm -hmm. they probably stole a car either in Washington or Oregon, transported it into California. That is a federal offense. So she was sent to the California Institution for Women in, oh, I don't know if I can pronounce this, Tehachapi, California. It's now in Corona, California. Yeah, it was, uh, was in Tehachapi, but it was then moved. She's only there. She's only kept in the institution for women for a couple years before she was held by authorities in Spokane for an investigation in 1948. Oh. 
and then arrested again in Spokane in June 1953 for forgery. On her FBI record, it doesn't actually say if she served any time for this or not. And it's because she might have died before she was sentenced. Daisy died in Spokane on September 13th, 1953. She was only 27 years old. Wow. Records on Ancestry.com don't list a cause of death. And as far, I couldn't, I don't have any access to records that stated her cause of death. I was trying to look for Washington, like, obituaries in the mm-hmm. newspaper. They did have the the death records on the Ancestry.com, but they don't have the image. Wow. And the image is normally where they list that cause of death. Mm-hmm. They just said they gave her her death dates, like her parents' names, and that was it. She is buried in Fairmont Memorial Park in Spokane. She's buried under the name Daisy E. Hart, but she doesn't seem to be buried near Paul as far as I could tell. I don't know if they were still married, Mm -hmm. if she just died under that name, if they'd separated or divorced by then. I don't even know if he was involved in any of these crimes. But so she died really young. I wish I knew why. Like, that's the one thing I want to know the most. Isadora doesn't die until two years later. Um, She was 70. So she she would have probably been the one in charge of putting that birth date on on the the headstone, which is why we know it's probably 1926, because probably no one knows better than the mother. Mm -hmm. So that it makes me kind of sad, you know, like she clearly was still sort of living this life of crime. Bigamy is such a it's such a different crime than the rest of these other ones. Vagrancy, violating the Dyer Act, Mm -hmm. forgery. Bigamy is such a rare occurrence. And for a 16 year old, for who someone who clearly was, I don't want to say taken advantage of, but essentially taken advantage of Mm -hmm. that, you know, he was this 53 year old man who held his his age, his fake FBI power over her to make her marry him and and daisy is is one of our inmates who i think was victim of circumstance much more than Mm -hmm. than an actual criminal she did eventually turn into one but i don't think that takes away from basically what she suffered at the hands of this creep this 53 year old creep who i dislike very much yeah wow so that is that is um our one of our youngest inmates daisy Elizabeth Him Parsley, number six six two six. Well, thanks, Sky. Good work. Thank I've you. I've been wondering about Daisy for mm-hmm. for a while, so I'm glad you kind of cleared some of that up. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I actually missed when I wrote her biography. I wrote it several months ago before we had access to Ancestry, and I actually totally missed that she had been brought back as a parole violator. Yeah. Oh. Um, and so I have to go back and fix all of that. Yeah. Um, we'll but to- yeah. There's there's some file out there that shows her cause of death. It's just it's, it's the, the, just uh, that we didn't have access to it. Yeah, like, yeah. If anyone in Washington wants to help us out yeah. and find Daisy's death certificate with that cause of death, I I mean it has to be like an accident. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was an illness. Uh, what is it? It's 1953. A lot of those early illnesses wouldn't have played too much of a factor. I don't think. Yeah. But I just, oh, I just want to know so bad. She was so young and she really kind of packed her life full. I mean, <laughs> you get married at 14, you can, you got lots of time yeah. to do stuff, I guess. Yeah. But, but yeah, so if anyone in Washington has access to obituaries or access to newspaper records or to that death certificate, mm-hmm. if you guys want to email it or any information to us at uh, behindgraywalls at gmail.com. I would give you all the credit in the world and probably send you some cookies if you're interested. <laughs> I'm very good at baking. So 
just putting that out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Anyway. Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. From there, you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group, where you can find the mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, supplementary images of the penitentiary, and discussions between group members. We'd love to see you there. If you like the podcast, please consider making a donation. You can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov donation.aspx. Be sure to click the Behind Gray Walls podcast tab on the left side of the page. Any donation amount is appreciated and will go toward improving the quality of this podcast, enabling us to bring you the stories that we love and that we hope you love too. Anyway. Anthony, why don't you tell us what you've got today? All Who right. you've got today. I have a fella named William H. Thomas. And so this this research actually comes from, from somebody telling me about WHT carved into the side of two house. Okay. So as you as you enter the prison yard, as you come to the old pen, and you look to your right, in the corner of two house, the one closest oh. to that door, you, you can see etched in the wall, WHT. It's about probably seven feet up. Um, like third or fourth block up, it's, a, it's it's faint, and you can only see it at you know. Was it a really visitor look. who found it? No, actually. Oh, okay. So I I kind of noticed it, and then Amber, our site administrator, uh-huh. was like, "Yeah, we've been trying to figure out who that is, what that is." And so I started digging, and I started going through the inmate index, and I tried to go to the scope when these buildings started construction, eighteen ninety nine. Mm-hmm. So I looked at like eighteen ninety nine, upward to about 1912 when the cell house opened up and I came across one inmate whose initials were WHT, mm-hmm. William Thomas. Mm. And so I just started digging on him and I found out his job was to sharpen the equipment that they were using to make these sandstone huh. blocks. And so I was like, of course, yeah, he's probably, yeah. So we'll never really know for sure because there's no documentation that he in fact did that. Right. But uh that's what kind of brought this this uh, research. So on he's here. kind of, but he's the only one that you could find that had those exact exactly. initials in that time period. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So you know, lots of digging. It's my favorite thing. Yeah, we love it. Yeah. Uh, so Thomas, he's actually born in Cornwall, England, and he's a Cornishman. And he's British. Uh, yes, he's, he's British. <laughs> Comes to the United States with his brother and his mother, looking to to strike a fortune in the mining industry, and uh, he. Finds work in the Florida Mountain Gold Silver Mine in De La Mar, Idaho, in the 1890s. And this this little town, De La Mar, it's just a few miles uh, away from Silver City. Um, but it's founded in 1898 by this miner named Joseph Raphael De La Mar, who was born in Amsterdam in 1843. His father dies when he's four years old, and as a young man, he sneaks onto a boat heading to the West Indies. And he's found on the boat, and they force him to work. And so he works like through his teenage years on these on these ships, and finally works his way up to become a shipmaster. Sorry, this is De La Mar, right? De La Mar, okay. yeah. I mean, just the, this little town itself is just fascinating to me. So at 20 years old, he becomes a shipmaster, and he works his way up. He develops all this wealth, and uh, eventually purchases several mining claims and like whole mountainsides, including oh, wow. De La Mar, Idaho, which is named after him. He eventually pulls over a million dollars worth of gold out of the ground in the 1890s. Oh, my. Just him. 
Well, or with, like the people. with this company, yeah, okay. yeah, and uh, so Jeez. now, now De Lamar is is just a ghost town. And in 1976, it was registered on the National Register of Historic Places. Mm-hmm. It's about six miles west of Silver City. Oh, why he can? And yes, yeah, and so William, you know. He comes to this little town. He finds a job. And uh, miners would regularly travel between Delamar and Silver City. And uh, there was a brothel in Silver City that... Nice. Yeah. William (laughs) would frequent. And he met Uh, this woman named Mabel Raymond in Silver City. And every time he'd he'd visit, he'd get paid. He'd go to to Mabel. Yeah. And her occupation meant that she regularly ran into quite a bit of trouble with her her patrons she had regular issues with this other man he was irish his name was jack ford and ford had a violent temper and he regularly threatened others in the town and on one one occasion uh miss raymond had a visitor in her bed when ford barged in oh. and struggled to charge the man out at gunpoint and the visitor who was just laying on the bed he was ignoring him pulled out his pipe and just began smoking no it while ford is just so upset <laughs> Ford strikes him on the top of the head, and Miss Raymond jumps between the two, and Ford threatened that he would give it to the other corner son of a bee, <laughs> referring to William Thomas, of course. And so, Wait, so William Thomas is his visitor who just like... Uh, William Thomas isn't even in the room. Oh, okay. So Jack is just like beating this guy up, because he, I think he's he likes Mabel, and, oh, uh, sure. and then he's like, I'm going to get that William Thomas, uh, too, you know, so don't don't let oh, him patronize boy. you yes love is a real curse guys yeah so december of 1894 <laughs> the threats rise oh. some more one evening miss raymond is returning to her home um late at night when she saw uh, ford standing at her door again with a pistol in his hand <sighs> william thomas had locked him inside her room and uh so she she shoes ford away and enters the room with william a few days later, on December 23rd, 1894, Thomas left Miss Raymond's home, went on a few errands. This is where he secures a long knife to protect himself from Ford, because he knows that Ford is, is out to get him. But he insisted that he didn't fear the Irishman. He visited a saloon and had a few drinks. Then he went into a parlor of another working woman's house where he came face to face with Ford. Uh-uh. He said, hello, Jack. And Ford responded, of course, with a British accent. I'm not going <laughs> to no. do that to you. We won't insult. Yeah. Hello, the Jack. <laughs> and uh, the Irishman says, you would not say that if I was Pat Kennedy. And Pat Kennedy is his is his uncle. Oh, and, I was like, what? Uh, he, he was an Irish journalist who founded the principal newspaper of Irish America called Irish World New York. So he's saying like... You don't, you know, I'm coming from prosperity. You wouldn't say that to my face, you know. You wouldn't uh, say that to my uncle. <laughs> That's such kind a weird a, thing to say. Kind of a cheese thing. But I think, I think Ford, you know, he flouted that in the town. That he's like from a very prominent okay. Irish, you know. Everybody knows my my family name and well, stuff. But this is also at a time where the Irish are not seen well, right? Yeah. This is this is like early 1900s mm-hmm. the irish are considered a completely different race at this time so yes. it's interesting that he is flouting his but this irish is, this is in, in irish in in a town filled with immigrants that are are True, working in mines and and do, doing all of this this hard labor mm-hmm. essentially basically 
Jack Ford says, you know, he could arrest Thomas. And Thomas responds that, you know, Ford or five men like him could never arrest me. Uh, he urges, Ford urges Thomas outside to fight and walks into another room where Thomas heard him say, Stella, give me the gun. Oh, no. So, you know, Ford is, he returns and approaches Thomas with one hand in his pocket. And Thomas mm-hmm. is thinking, Mm-mm. you know, this guy's got a gun in yep. his pocket. So yep. Thomas pulls out his knife and told Ford to stop where he was. Ford called Thomas a coward and continued to back him into a corner. And so Thomas, feeling backed into a corner, pulls out his knife and plunges it into Ford's side just above the left hip. Boy. The blade glanced Ford's backbone and made an incision clear through Ford's body. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Whoa. So William Thomas, he flees the room. He runs back to Miss Raymond, to Mabel's room, and exclaims that he thinks he had killed Ford but could not help it. Upon investigation, there's no gun found in Ford's pocket. Stella had refused to hand it to him. Stella. So Thomas is arrested almost immediately, and and the town is up in arms. They threaten to lynch him. The whole town. They actually beat Mabel (gasps) and force her out of town on a train to Wyoming. And this minor is sent with her to ensure that she wouldn't be able to testify to defend Thomas in trial. And the minor actually threatened to cut her throat if she came back to testify. So even the counsel in Thomas's defense, these are some names that you might know, William Bora and Holly and Puckett uh, were threatened with personal violence. And two days after the affray on Christmas Day, 1894, Jack Ford dies from these wounds. And... You know, the town is in uproar. They they have to defend Thomas in his jail cell so that they don't come in and lynch him. So the town just liked um, Ford. Yeah, just, yeah. He was, because he was, a, like, was he, li- he doesn't seem likable to me, but was right. he likable? I think he was just a tough, tough man that, that was from Silver City. Okay. And it's just this really small community. And that- so... So Thomas, though, was sort of an outsider because he was technically like from De La Mar, right? He's so he's kind of an outsider. Yeah, exactly. He's okay. a visitor. All when right. he gets a paycheck, he comes to Silver City like a lot of miners do. For Mabel. But, I got you. Yeah. But I think he's he's a bit of a rabble rouser. <laughs> we've, we've got his life story coming. So, <laughs> so at the trial, uh, William Thomas's defense saw that the townsfolks, they wouldn't allow for a fair trial. So they call for a change of venue from Silver City to Boise, which is granted, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is a that's a good thing. A good thing a good for thing. his safety, yep. yeah. And a, a whole party had to travel to Wyoming to bring back Mabel Raymond okay. and to serve as a witness and to defend her, uh, you know, on uh-huh. her commute back to Boise and defend her while she was here. And the, the trial actually lasts five days, and witnesses for the prosecution were adamantly against William Thomas, uh, of course. And most stated that he... F- he ought to be hung. And one woman even is quoted in the newspaper saying that she would furnish the rope and help to pull it for his hanging. So, I mean, this wow. is extreme yeah. uh, <sighs> hatred for this man. And throughout the week, there were the, all these close encounters in Boise between the witnesses from both sides. And uh, one argument got so heated that there was a call for a duel in the streets. Oh, duels. Yeah. One man summed up the trial saying, it's the Cornish <laughs> against the Irish. Look out for fun. Yeah. <laughs> and sure enough, Boise was looking out for this fun. Uh, at the end of the trial, it took the jury three hours to decide which degree of murder Thomas had committed. Okay. And the final verdict is manslaughter, which held a maximum okay. of 10 years that's behind the walls. Okay. And that's what the judge sentences William Thomas to 10 years of hard labor at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Thomas left the courthouse 
with his hat flopped on the back of his head and Miss Raymond weeping behind him. Oh, so they 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 seem to like each other. They did. For I real. think like, they did kind of have, have a relationship. They may have been in love. Mm-hmm. Again, love is a curse. Yeah. <laughs> it makes yeah. people do crazy things. Well, and, and he was extremely emotional. So when he arrives at the mm-hmm. jail, he tells other prisoners that he would cut his throat from ear to ear before oh. he would go to the penitentiary. He actually secured a razor, removed oh, no. his clothes, and <gasps> another inmate in his cell stopped him from completing the mission. Whoa. And he ended up raving all night long and sobbing and screaming. And he, he was shouting, I would give my life for just one week's liberty. I'd fix some of those blank, blank, blanks. And then <laughs> Godspeed, the end. So, Sorry, this is like his first few days yeah, in this prison. Is just, this is him in the Ada County Jail before oh, he's even shipped to geez. the Idaho State Penitentiary. He, he tries to commit suicide. Mm. Uh, he arrives at the prison on September 17th, 1895, prisoner number 448, William H. Thomas. And a bunch of letters and lists of signatures calling for his release arrive from, you know, former coworkers, miners that he worked with, and friends from De La Mar and Silver City who were afraid to defend him during the trial because of all the hostility towards mm-hmm, him. So they're like, mm-hmm. all these character witnesses that were too afraid to come to town because they might get killed mm-hmm. for de- trying to defend him. And uh, despite this, he remains in the prison. Um, January 7th, 1901, so this is about six years into his sentence, uh, he gets into a fight with another inmate named Chester Hardesty. And Hardesty was serving time for a series of, of robberies in De La Mar and Silver City, and which is probably where they met and mm-hmm. where uh, some of their issues may have begun. Okay. But both had cuts and bruises, but Thomas got the best of Hardesty. He bit the middle finger on the left hand so hard that the prison physician had to amputate the finger at the middle joint in order to save further bad and serious effects to the said Hardesty's health and life. That's what the <laughs> physician says. Just- so, uh, William Thomas, six years into his sentence, he, he could have gotten out like that oh year. Oh, my gosh. He loses all of his good time. He which, bit off a person's finger. Yes. I'm... Yeah. So, he does this in January 1901. <laughs> he would have been released in December of 1901. Oh, um, gosh. A year later, November 1902, the warden wrote to the parole board calling for three-fourths of his good time to be returned to him. So, he was, on his, he was in good behavior uh, after biting off somebody's finger and uh he's released that same month um november of 1902 so after his release he moves to oregon and works in a mine in pearl and he's arrested and questioned about a burglary for some overcoats in a baker city hotel he's released due to a lack of evidence 1906 he's living in atlanta idaho and working in the black warrior mine where he's an expert driller, and he's he's getting into in tip top shape. That's what they say. He's working out. He's actually working up towards this Fourth of July contest. It's a oh, drilling contest. No way. So I mean, he's just buff, like yeah, working just, on all this mining equipment. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yes. But his love of alcohol and quick temper would end his chance in this competition because uh, while playing a game of poker in a saloon against a man named Charles Doran, Thomas gets to drinking pretty heavily. And after the game ends, he demands $50 from Doran. Doran told him he didn't owe him any money. He's like, no, you just lost this game. And there was some some thought that Thomas William was actually uh, cheating during this whole gambling game. But he was drinking so much right. that he was like getting sloppy. 
So Tom William, <sighs> he, he storms out of the saloon, returns moments later with both hands in his pockets. And Doran said, I thought he had an empty beer bottle in his pockets and was going to hit me over the head with it. So I threw up my left hand just as he pulled a gun and fired. <gasps> my hand was in such a position that it protected my heart. And I presume my action in throwing up my arm saved my life. Oh. Thomas did not say a word from the time he entered the door until he shot. The bullet shattered both bones of Doran's lower left arm. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Listen, I I have a broken wrist from soccer, and it was, uh, there's no shattering of bones involved, and it sucks. You've got the saddest face thinking about this. (laughs) So, uh, Thomas, of course, is immediately arrested. A physician attempts to pull the bullet from Doran's arm, but failed, and had to send the man to Boise to complete the operation. So he's just in the worst pain. Thomas is bound to district court in Mountain Home. And so he's shipped from Atlanta, Idaho to Mountain Home. He's put into custody by the court to a man who was acting as deputy sheriff. He had never been sworn in to the police force. His name is Lon Lape. And Lape was in charge of bringing Thomas to Mountain Home. He took his time. (laughs) And uh, actually, he stops at a saloon and told this young boy named Elliot to keep an eye on Thomas outside while he went in to have a drink. Boy, <laughs> and so as as Lape enters the saloon, oh. Thomas remarks to this Elliot. He says, "If you're gonna keep an eye on me, you'll have to go some." And right after he says that, he just darts off into the brush. And Elliot is just like, uh, "Oh, uh, how old is he? Do you know?" I it didn't say. Oh. It, I think he was a teenager though. I think he was like oh. sixteen or seventeen. Gosh. And so he tells Lape what happened, and Lape runs off. But uh, listen, Sheriff. Don't go get a drink when <laughs> you're transporting. Sheriff. Exactly. It doesn't yeah. matter if he's acting or if he's elected or whatever, however he became mistake. sheriff. Yeah. You don't leave <laughs> anything in the possession of a teenager. It will get right. lost, yes. especially if it's a criminal that you're supposed right. to be transporting. Don't do it. And, you know, maybe don't drink on the job. Like, I, I didn't Again, understand that aspect of there it. There are either. many reasons why this is a bad idea. <laughs> Here, hang outside while I have a drink you... before I transport this, you know, clearly armed and dangerous man who's buff and ripped from <laughs> getting ready for this drilling competition. Yeah, I'll just leave him oh, outside. I wish we had a boy. picture of him just in his buffness. <laughs> he is a good looking so, man. Yes. So... A $75 reward is out for his capture, and authorities are tipped off that Thomas is heading towards Boise. And uh, officer, ca- they, they actually capture him around 11 p.m. on July 16, 1906, so just, just about a week later, when he's leaving a disreputable house holding a mm-hmm. wicked-looking forty-four caliber revolver in his hand. And he was said to have been searching for an old sweetheart, which I kind of wonder if that was. Mabel. Mabel, exactly, yeah. This is a true love story. Yeah, right? <laughs> and I couldn't find any evidence that that was exactly oh, who, but that's who that I kind of like wondered. That seems like who... It seems like that would be reasonable mm-hmm. because, I mean, if he was always visiting Mabel and then he went into prison, and, and I guess he did have a few years in between, but, yeah. oh, he just will pretend it's Mabel and that he loved her. Yeah. So <laughs> he, like, walks out of this house surrounded, and the arresting officer stated, you wouldn't shoot me anyhow, Bill, calling him Bill instead of William. Oh. Thomas responds, like hell I wouldn't. You had the drop of me, all right. But if you hadn't, I'd have shown you whether I would or not. That was a southern accent instead yep, of a no, British it's not accent. British. <laughs> I'm terrible at accents. Okay. So, 
the officers, they received the reward for his capture, the $75 reward, and sent him back to Mountain Home for his trial. And he is convicted, and he returns to the Idaho State Penitentiary a second time on October 19th, 1907. Seems like he he gets on for a short time, and then uh, he finds himself working sharpening the tools in the prison yard which i say is a very effective position to carve initials into the stone Uh on the side of number Uh two house so come look at that wht it's a little easter egg as soon as you walk into the yard look to your right and those cornerstones of two house august 3rd 1908 he's sent to dig a ditch from barber dam to the penitentiary grounds and barber dam uh was constructed between 1904 and 1906 about three miles east of boise and it was actually a, a pond for collecting timber and there's a timber mill right there so this is essentially just to get extra water irrigation exactly. to the penitentiary yeah yeah and so he and this other inmate they find their opportunity to make a break yep and they do. And a $50 reward is is set for his capture. And it's believed that he has friends in Boise because of these, you know, these houses mm-hmm. of ill repute that he frequents. So the warden actually raises his, his uh, reward to $150, hoping that his friends aren't that good of friends. Yeah. That they'll be like, oh, $150. $150? Yeah, Thomas, you can go back to mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, but nothing. Nothing. So this, well, I mean. Loyal friends. Yeah, this is 1908. Finally... February 1911, the warden receives this anonymous letter dated January 31st, 1911. It's full of misspellings. So, yay. God help me get <laughs> through this letter. Okay. Yeah. It says, City Marshal, dear sir, I have this information that Will Irwin or Will Granville, alas, instead of alias, uh, mm-hmm. Will Thomas is wanted there. If so, I can tell you where he is or was three days ago. He is at Yeller, Colorado, working at a mine called The Chance. If you want him very bad, the sheriff in Creed knows him. I heard yesterday that this man was going to leave there, so you will have to hurry. He told a friend of mine, for God's sake, not to tell anyone in Idaho that he was there. He has done me enough dirt. I hope he will be punished for what he has done in the past, and that will suffice me. From a friend. So (laughs) Thomas had let slip that he was an escaped convict, and the warden contacts the sheriff of Creed, Colorado, via Western Union Telegraph, and uh, the sheriff responds, yep, just arrested him. He's in our, our jail here. And so they send a traveling guard who brings William Thomas from Colorado back to Boise to serve out the rest of his sentence. A month later, a woman writes in calling for a divorce from William Thomas. Her name is Serena Thomas. And uh, she met William in Denver, Colorado. And mm-hmm. he didn't mention anything about his past or that he was an escaped convict before they were married. It wasn't until he was arrested when she found out. And that's when Thomas actually writes a letter uh, while in jail acknowledging the truth to her. He says, uh, I shot a gambler back there and I was sent to prison for 12 years. I was only there five or six months when I got away. It was not my fault I ran away. I killed a man back there in 1894. He was a good fellow, but he tried to get me. Miss Thomas asked for an annulment and stated that Thomas frequently fell in a burst of anger in which he would say that he would someday go to prison. She thought it was a threat against her, not realizing that, oh my gosh, he's we found out that he's an escaped convict. And, And so, yeah, that's granted against him. So he, you know, spends the next couple of years behind bars without without much issue actually he didn't have any write-ups or anything like that he 
applies for a parole in 1913, mm-hmm. which, despite his past, is given to him. And uh, it's a conditional pardon on October 1st, 1913. The condition being that he abstained from the use of intoxicating liquors. Because that seems to be his big drawback, which, I mean, Mm -hmm. our prisons currently are filled with people Mm -hmm. who have similar Mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. And he did not stay out of the news for long. Uh, October 19th, (laughs) 1913, the Idaho Statesman ran a story. Think missing woman has eloped her. Husband and police now believe she left with ex-convict was friendly to him. <laughs> so, former inmate, her name was Josie Kensler, we who love. we will get to in the very last episode. No, I thought we were season. doing Light of Last. Are we doing Light of Last? I think we've already yes. talked about Josie. Good, we have talked about Josie. <laughs> I think it's episode two, actually. <gasps> You're right. Well, so episode you three, back, if you count the history one. That's right. Okay. So go back to Josie Kensler's episode. We love Josie. This is the William Thomas that she eventually marries and falls in love with after a little bit of contention. And uh, she had married a man named Ketchum, who she said was abusive towards Mm -hmm. her. Who also, if you remember, was accused of uh, like beating and almost killing her son. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, actually, when they get divorced, I love the quote from Mr. Ketchum saying, Mr. Judge, Mr. McCarthy, from the bottom of my heart, I wish to thank you for granting my wife that divorce. So, <laughs> yeah. she she actually marries William Thomas mm-hmm. after changing her name to Joan Kensler. They just have William Edward Thomas, born August 1st, 1914. And then five years later, William Thomas would die as the Spanish influenza mm-hmm. would come and mm-hmm. contact the whole world and mm-hmm. kill millions and millions mm-hmm. and yeah do we know where he's buried probably in salt lake i believe it's in salt lake and i actually i did not know the end of his story originally when i wrote this about mm-hmm. a year ago mm-hmm. um i actually pulled this from paula huff bryant's book about mm-hmm. josie uh the manuscript that mm-hmm. we have that, mm-hmm. which um, i used extensively in exactly. my episode on yeah, josie fantastic as well fantastic piece of work that it is quite good yeah well, nice job. I love having our little connecting. Yes. So here's what I find so interesting. So he's English. Americans are suckers for English accents. Not, not, not sit here and pretend that's not the case. Men <laughs> with English accents, for some reason, get the ladies going. Second of all, he is buff. Yes. He's, the, he's that fit. combination is deadly yeah, when can... he's in, in with Josie. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Oh, I, as I said in that episode, of the men that she was with, he is for sure the most attractive and if he's buff and he's english <laughs> i get it i get it josie i get it yes. because they were involved to, with each other mm-hmm. while he was in prison yes yeah yeah and we did not discuss that in, you yeah, skipped right over that because we talked about I it did. already oh yeah because i because he was the one who came in and told like the warden struck a deal with him this is how he gets that fourth exactly. three fourths good time back yeah is by going to josie and saying listen you need to give a different statement that yes. contradicts your first and you'll get <laughs> you'll be let out early we'll release you this yeah. is him yes i love it oh he oh, is what a connecting. fascinating all the way from you know, England to some mines and all this Northwest yeah. area, all these different yeah. mining towns that, that he visited and See, became I, a part of. And I didn't know his story. So I'm, I love that you did him. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And then that WHT. Seriously. I see. I didn't know that either. So Look we'll have to it, go yeah. when we go back, I'll have to check it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, very nice work, Anthony. Ooh. Another episode in the books. Yes. Great work. All right. Well, this has been brought to you 
from the trench <laughs> in the J. Curtis Earl, uh-huh. the old Idaho Penitentiary. We'll be back with you again next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, do your own time. Do your own number. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.